Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. I have the great honor of uh, being joined today by Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs. Rabbi Sachs is an educator, a writer, he's an editor, he's a scholar in many different areas that are really significant to our lives. And he also, on top of that, occupies an important role in teaching Torah through the web via WebYeshiva.org, which is a project of the Academy for Torah Initiatives and Directives in Jewish Education, known as ATID. And so I thank him for joining us today. Rabbi, it's a pleasure to see you. Thank you, Rabbi Matanki. It's nice to see you online, and it was even nicer to see you uh, last week uh, when I was in Chicago visiting the community, and uh, and nice to be here with you and your your friends online. I appreciate it. So let me start with some simple things to start with. It, you are one of the experts regarding Shai Agnon, the Nobel laureate who is the famous author who wrote so many famous things that I read uh, when I was younger, and I still enjoy reading today. Um, just this morning, I mentioned to you right before we went online, I walked into a classroom and they were about ready to learn Maaseh is the famous story of the goat with the right. tongue of Eretz Yisrael that Agnon wrote that I'm sure many people are familiar with. How did you get involved with the Agnon, with Agnon's writings and now as the series, <laughs> the series editor of the Shai Agnon Library at, at Toby Press and director of research at the, the Agnon House, how'd you, how'd you get started with that? Right. So, I mean, first we have to, acknowledge that like you know many Israelis uh, my CV is uh, you know is is longer than than the days in the in the year um, and I, I do a lot of different things and wear a lot of different hats um, but the Agnon thing is certainly a curiosity uh, I was in Chicago uh, recently uh, as, a, as a guest of the uh, Ortorak community for Shabbat and on the Sunday and Monday I was at an academic conference related to Agnon which I helped organize at Northwestern and uh, before I got up to speak in front of you know people who are full-time academics, I had to acknowledge that you know there were many unlikely turns in my life, uh, like everything else in my life, my professional life, my personal life, so many unlikely turns that uh, led me to somehow be recognized as a leading, not the leading, a leading uh, scholar on the writings of Shai Agnon. I guess we should just say in parentheses, Shai Agnon uh, was Hebrew literature's only Nobel laureate. He died in 1970, having won the Nobel in 1966. Uh, he is considered the greatest, most significant uh, Hebrew author of modern of modern Hebrew literature. And for our purposes, for people that are Yoshevei uh, Beit HaMidrash, as, as you seem to be, at least uh, with your virtual background, um, uh, he's significant to us because very much of his writing, I, I hope your students and Ida Crown caught this, uh, when they were studying the story that you mentioned this morning, it's a distillation of the entirety of the, the Jewish bookshelf from Tanakh and the Forshim and uh, certainly Chazal, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Agadah, through medieval Hebrew literature, you know, you name it, leading up to the great Jewish writers, Yiddish writers, early Hebrew writers that proceed of Jewish literature and distilling it into modern modern writing. Um, and in that way, it's very, pardon the expression, I'll put it in air quotes, it's midrashic in the sense that it's engaged with all of those holy texts that come beforehand. It's trying to, to, uh, to, 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 to filter a statement about contemporary Jewish life, uh, Jewish life in Europe, uh, in the, in the uh, 
beginning of the 20th century, uh, the revival of Jewish life here in, in Eretz Yisrael uh, after he arrives, and then even later after the establishment of the state, and try to filter it through the canon of everything that was written before. So that's who he was. How did I come to him? In high school, growing up in New Jersey, I grew up in a non-observant home. And uh, early in high school, I became interested in, in Jewish things. And I started a process of becoming more Jewishly engaged and, you know, what they call Choser uh, Batshuva. Um, and uh, somebody gave me a copy. It's up there on the shelf. I could pull it down. Um, a copy of what was then called 21 Stories. Uh, it was a collection, a very odd, uneven collection of things that existed in translation, short stories. It was published by Shokin. existed right? in translation. It was published. published. Shokin, Shokin, was, Shokin was Agnon's uh, patron and supporter and publisher. And to this day, his, uh, his publisher in Hebrew, they own the copyright on uh, on his writings and they guard it very carefully. Um, when he won the prize, they took existing, there had been stories that were translated and published in Commentary Magazine and in other Jewish platforms. And they slapped them between two covers, it, it, you know, because when a, when a foreign author wins a Nobel for a moment, there's a bit of interest in him. I guess they wanted to sell books, which is a reasonable thing to do if you're a publisher. Um, and somebody gifted this to me. Uh, uh, when I was in high school, and I, I certainly could not have read him in Hebrew then, and even if I could, I, I could not have, you know, made my way through all of his uh, delicate intertextual references to all of the sources that I did not yet know, uh, the Gemarot, the, the Midrashim, and Chazal. But yet, I still understood that he he was saying something really very interesting and profound and sharp about about contemporary Jewish life, about the transition from tradition to modernity from a world of, you know, where faith is just kind of absorbed with your mother's milk to a world where faith is either tragically abandoned or where faith has to be earned. It has to be worked for as, as we modern Jews must, uh, must do about the relationship between uh, the diaspora and the revived Jewish life in Eretz Israel. And these were all things that were really interesting to me. And some of them were processes that I myself was, was undergoing in certain ways. So I, I, I was very interested and engaged in. I continued to, to read him in translation where available. And then when I came in Aliyah, quite young, I was 25 when I came in Aliyah, I attempted to read him in Hebrew. But like many Olim Chadashim, my Hebrew was not yet good enough and it took quite a while. And then at a certain point, uh, a number of years later, I... I realized I had read quite a bit, uh, you know, of his writings, and I got the idea. I was home on a sick day, uh, and I was just, you know, reading, and I got the idea that you could read the whole collected writings. There are 23 volumes in the collected writings. I had already read, you know, a fair deal of it, and I had this idea you could do the whole thing, beginning beginning to end. And like all of those kinds of immersion projects, um, Lahavdil, Dafiomi being one, Lahavdil, El of Avdolot, um, it becomes, well, it becomes a bit obsessive. And it also becomes one of those things where you learn a lot about the thing you've immersed yourself into, but then the whole thing becomes a lens to look back on yourself and to learn something about your yourself. And anyway, long to make a very long story, uh, even a drop longer, um, at a certain point, I had amassed a certain amount of knowledge about Agnon and his writings, and I had very good guides that helped me into the world of reading about his writing, the scholarship written on him. And I was invited to give a series of lectures at the Agnon House, which is the home in which he lived in, in the Talpiot neighborhood of Jerusalem, which today is a museum and heritage center, his library of many thousands of volumes. 
uh, still housed there. Some of them quite, quite rare. Visitors to Jerusalem are, are welcome. Certainly the bibliophiles would love a visit uh, to Beit Agnon just to see the library. Uh, many of the books are, are uh, uh, you know, have dedications from the very many other great figures of the 20th century. Uh, there are books that we have. A, we have a, a book, the first, the first edition of the Igrot Ra'ayah, the letters of Rav Kook, which Rav Kook himself uh, gave to gave to Agnon, and lots of other really interesting figures. Anyway, what started off as a short series of lectures became an ongoing investment in energy and a quite a very time-consuming hobby. And at a certain point, I took on a more official role as the director of research there, uh, which is really just a side job to my main work at Atid and Web Yeshiva. And along the way, I also became the editor of this series you mentioned, the Agnon Library, which was published by the Toby Press, which is a branch of Korain. No doubt, you know, our listeners know Korain from their Gemaras and their Sidurim, but they also publish Hebrew literature and translation. And we put out 15 volumes of Agnon's writings in translation with annotations and commentary by yours truly. And in the course of all of those things, was there anything really fascinating or different or unusual that you learned about Agnon? A snippet well, of something? It would be hard to explain all that in the few minutes that we have. But I, again, what I, what I mentioned earlier, this kind of fascination that the the intertextual, you know, what, what some critics see as a kind of, of game of hide and seek, where he's he's burying sources, you know, sometimes right below the surface, sometimes very, very deep, uh, sending the reader off on some kind of wild goose chase, which is part of, sadly, part of what makes Agnon's writing to many contemporary Israelis something that's a little off-putting, because tragically, so many Israelis are, are distanced from from the classic sources and, and, and bookshelf. I'm, I'm often asked by Israelis, you know, with, with, with the natural Hebrew chauvinism, how could you possibly translate Agnon? How could you read Agnon in translation? It's impossible. And it's true that like all translation, a lot is, 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 a lot is lost in, in translation, but we all read in translation. We all read foreign literature in, in translation. Translation is a wonderful passport that allows us to experience other other literatures and other cultures. But with Agnon, the question isn't so much how can you read him in translation, but how can so many Israelis who are alienated from the tradition, and I'm not here talking about religious observance, right? In other words, halavai, everyone should should uh, return to traditional observance, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm just talking about a lack of knowledge of Jewish tradition, Jewish sources, which one need not be Sabbath observant to have. Once upon a time, there was a, uh, a significant section of Israeli uh, population who were not traditionally observant, but were neither were they Ameha Aretz uh, in, the, in you know, the common definition of that term. And they could read and appreciate Agnon and what he was doing. So the question is, and how can you read Agnon in translation? Very many of our listeners, very many of your, your, uh, your congregants there, you know, might have trouble reading Agnon in, in the original Hebrew. That's something they should all work on. But if they read him in translation, at least in a good, good translation, a lot of the sources would come through, right? A lot of the references would come through even in translation, what sadly many of the, of the Hebrew readers wouldn't. So, so your students, for example, the story you mentioned called Maseho Ez, in English it's called The Fable of the Goat. Uh, it's a very short story. It's about two and a half pages. 
And it's a, I'm sure many listeners know it, even if they haven't read it, it's the story of this magical passageway between Poland, you know, in the days of old, in the, it's not exactly clear, let's say it's set in the 19th century, the magical cave, uh, you know, kind of like platform nine and three quarters that can help you, you know, escape this world into a more magical world or, or Alice's uh, looking glass or Dorothy's tornado, uh, you know, that can transport you off to the, the magical world, the land of Oz, to never, to the wonderland. So for the little Jewish boy in Poland, the wonderland is the land of Israel. Now, this Agnon didn't need to create a fictionalized magical realm. Uh, he had one built in, in the Jewish imagination, the Jews in Poland, the Jews in the diaspora, the Jews that longed for Eretz Yisrael, but for whom the chances of getting to Eretz Yisrael throughout those bitter years of exile, you know, was almost as impossible as actually getting to Narnia or getting to, getting to Oz. Um, he had one already built in, this imagined land of Israel. And when the little boy discovers the magic passageway that can get you there, but the Kvitzat HaDerech, following along through his guide, the, this, this special goat, um, he's playing off of all types of motifs, which your students may, I hope they caught, uh, the Gemara in Shabbat, Daflam and Gimel, the story of Shimon Bar Yochai and the cave, uh, the cave from which he hides from the Romans, uh, another kind of magical cave. As Agnon kind of, uh, you know, looks into the, the classic literature and he finds ready-made uh, a, a distinctly Jewish motif, a Talmudic motif, and he modernizes it about a story of the passage to Eretz Yisrael, which then becomes a commentary on what was happening. The story was first published in 1925 when the, the modern Zionism was really getting going. Yeah. And, and it becomes a statement about what it means for us now to return to Eretz Yisrael, where we don't need magic caves, where you can, they didn't have Elal yet, but you could just get on a boat and come. I don't want to lose all of the other things that the big things that you're involved in. So I'm going to move away from Agnon for a moment. Sure. Um, we may come back if we have time, but I want to talk a little bit about Web Yeshiva with you, webyeshiva.org. When you came on Aliyah 94, it was at the invitation of Rabbi Riskin and Rabbi Bravender to be the administrator in, in their yeshiva, which was called Yeshiva Tamiftar. Then, in uh, then a little bit later in '99, Rabbi Bravender invited you together uh, to work together to create Atid, and then in 2007, Atid became Web Yeshiva. So we have an online yeshiva for students all across the world. It's been around, if my math is right, for about 15, 16 years. No, How many fun. students use Web Yeshiva? And by the way, the URL is Web Yeshiva. Y-E-S-H-I-V-A dot org. How many students are on Web Yeshiva? We have about 9,000 registered students. Uh, it's, it's perfectly free. Uh, you don't need to give a credit card. You just have to you know, create a username and a password. And it allows you to access our many, we have about 60 hours a week of live, synchronous, interactive shiurim. I like to say that we invented this before the rest of the world discovered Zoom these last uh, three years of, uh, of COVID. Um, Everything is archived so that each course creates its own archive where you can, if you're not able to participate live, you can, you can watch the video recording. Usually, unlike what you're seeing now, the text itself, last night I gave a Gemara Shigur, the text of the Gemara, the page of the Gemara is displayed on the screen and we're able to annotate it. And of course, you see the 
the uh, the faces and hear the voices of the people. Well, every by now everybody knows how this technology works. But when we started in 2007, we were always <laughs> we were always a few months ahead of the technology, <laughs> um, which caused a lot of uh, a lot of uh, there was a learning curve at the beginning uh, when we became the first the fully interactive online. Uh, Jewish learning platform. So if you go for um, sixty hours a week, and yeah, so there are thousands of there are thousands of hours of archived. Some are just one-off special classes. Most are ongoing courses. Uh, most in English, although of course in other languages as well, in Russian, in Polish, in Hungarian. Uh, we have a following in, in Hungary. Uh, uh, believe it or not, of course in, in Hebrew. Um, we've done things that aren't you know conventional fair for yeshivot like for example people that want to study agnon's literature not something you normally find in a bit midrash but something which the flexibility of an online platform language courses hebrew yiddish and uh, and, and and aramaic of course very popular course and we have offerings in you know gemara and tanakh and halacha we have a special halacha mastery program which does have a small um a small tuition connected to it. It's a three-year rather intensive program. There are two courses a year, and the students are really meant to make investment beyond what's kind of conventional adult education. Uh, you're meant to be studying and preparing. There are two exams a year, um, which are designed for personal achievements to show that you've mastered the material. And it's halakha lama'aseh, practical halakha that a balabos, that a, that a, that a Jewish adult should know in order to manage their own home, in order to answer the questions of their children. You, Rabbi Matanki, are a rabbi. You're a wonderful rabbi. You spend a lot of time answering questions from your congregants. But I'm sure it must happen that from time to time, somebody calls you with a question and you hit yourself on the head and say, they should know the answer themselves. They shouldn't need to call the rabbi. They need to know which questions to send up the food chain, to send up the ladder. There are things that we want people to know to the rabbi. But the, the meat spoon in the milk pot, somebody that runs, that competently runs their own kosher kitchen should know what to do. And that's the purpose of this, this uh, course. Um, and uh, it's open to men and women. And it's a very popular thing for people that can make that investment of time. So you teach, Rabbi Bravender teaches, those are two stars. Who else, who else are the teachers? At the one, of our main, one of our main teachers, uh, and those of you that remember Yeshiva Tamiftar, the days of old, which was a very important pioneering yeshiva, which Rabbi Bravinder started in the 1970s, and sadly is no longer around because I think there's still a need for it, or those that studied at the at Madrashat Lindenbaum or Chlel Bruria in its early day will remember the name Rabbi David Fink, who was this legendary teacher of, of halacha. Uh, he's one of our main teachers and one of the main figures in that halacha al-maseh program. Uh, we have uh, teachers here in Israel, we have teachers from the United States covering Different hours, uh, you know, of the of the time of the, of the day. Uh, there's some people that you know come for special things, and other people who are on a very set standard. Uh, always offering, always offering uh, courses and classes. We have a dafyomi shiur that's given every day uh, with Rabbi Gidon Rothstein. Uh, we have uh, classes in Tanakh by Rabbi Nit Yafit Kleimer, who's a very well known and respected educator here. In, uh, in in Israel and, and many others. If you visit the website, webyeshiva.org, you can see the course listings and the faculty and back into the archives. One of the interesting things is because we have archived shiurim, uh, people will sometimes find a, a, a class that was given long ago. I, I, gave a, I gave a course on Rabbi Soloveitchik's Lonely Man of Faith. It's a very, very detailed 
working through each chapter of the Lonely Man of Faith. Um, but I gave this class like over a dozen years ago. But for some reason, it's it, during Corona, particularly, it became very popular, uh, and a lot of people registered for it and did it, you know, at their own at their own pace. And I, I get from time to time emails from students that are taking this course asking me, in episode four, you said the following. <laughs> what did you mean by that? I have to go back myself and and re-listen to to what I taught in order to know what it is that I said. Wow. And then the third area which you are really involved in is one where you and I interface significantly. We're back in well, that's only because you're 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 at fault here. You're guilty of it. You I, and, I, and, into I, it. and I take great pride in this fall. It goes back to 2018, but in January 2019, you assumed the role as editor of the journal Tradition, the Journal of Orthodox Jewish Thought, published by the RCA. Uh, the very first uh, editor. Oh, there's the new edition. Very first one was uh, first editor was Rabbi Lamb, and a very distinguished series of editors who who did it. Um, there was, I think, you're the sixth of all of I the editors. I'm the sixth editor. Yeah, yeah. this is a significant uh, journal in the sense it's one of the key places where scholarship coming from what we'll call the modern Orthodox world, for lack of better terms, and I think Rabbi Lamb even agreed that there was a lack of a better term for it, yeah. are able to express themselves in a meaningful fashion, and you brought it to the next level. It comes out quarterly. I, when you took on the tradition role, what do you think were the major opportunities for our community to learn about through tradition? Well, I, I like to joke that uh, my task take, coming on as the editor of tradition in 2018, 2019 was to, was to bring tradition into the late 20th century. Uh, <laughs> scholarly journals you know, tend to be not always so cutting edge, but in a world where it's not a given that people are still invested in print, and I was really vested in print. You know, there were there were people that thought, you know, well, just turn it all online. Um, but I really still believe in the value of print um, for a whole variety of reasons, which we can talk about on another occasion. But uh, like like almost every scholarly journal, um, it, it, unlike the Chicago Tribune, if you if you you know have a subscription, you expect it to actually show up every day on the door. And if one morning you go out to your doorstep and it's not there, you know, you call the subscription services and complain. Quarterly journals aren't exactly like that. And uh, very many scholarly journals fall behind. It's a quarterly journal that comes out three times a year. Uh, you know, if you keep the dating sequential, so in the fall of 2022, you might be putting out your summer 2017 issue because you just keep <laughs> lagging behind. And I really believe I made a commitment that if we're going to still be relevant in this day and age, if a print journal that arrives on dead tree in your mailbox is still going to be relevant, you actually have to show up on time four times a year. So we've been doing that now for the past, uh, you know, going on three and a half years. We increase the size of each issue. Um, we come out at about 150 or 175 pages you know, per issue again, four times a year. We've done a few special issues, which have been even larger. Perhaps the most significant one was a memorial volume uh, for Rabbi Lamb, the founder of the journal, and you know, of course, you know, who was the leading intellectual light in uh, you know American modern orthodoxy. The term you mentioned is a charged term. And as a matter of fact, my essay in that volume was about his amb his ambivalence about the term modern orthodoxy, centrist orthodoxy, and what these things mean. And why ultimately those those kinds of name games are a little little silly and distracting, um, but it was a memorial volume where each of the 
think there were 30 authors, 30, 30 essays in the, in the volume. It came out as a hardcover, hardcover book. Um, they each engaged, each one engaged with a different piece of Rabbi Lamb's bibliography. Rabbi Lamb was incredibly prolific when we think of the responsibilities that he carried throughout his career. Uh, the fact that he continued to be a leading intellectual figure and to the output of, of writing and, and scholarship and commentary is amazing. And each author took one different book or one different essay or a cluster of related essays and wrote about that issue through what he left behind. So it's not a kind of conventional memorial volume where you get people who knew the deceased to write whatever they write about, you put it between two covers. It's really a commentary on his, on his, on his writing. So part of it was to, to just to show up and to be relevant. Um, but part of it was to walk this, this very delicate tightrope. I always say tradition is not an academic journal. It's a scholarly journal. What's the difference? An academic journal usually lives in a very, very narrow academic field. Um, you know, the journal of pediatric orthodontics, the journal of biblical grammar, where they'll publish an essay about the Kamatz Gadol in Sefer Tzfania, chapter two. Uh, the Journal of Canadian Fisheries, where you can read an article about the Nova Scotia salmon harvest of May 1873. Those are, those are journals that are writing in very, very narrow fields. The people that are in those fields have to be publishing in it, and they're having a conversation amongst themselves. If there's some sugar that's interested in our field and they want to eavesdrop, they're more than welcome. Tradition is not like that. Tradition is a scholarly journal, meaning we have scholarly criteria that we hold our authors and editors to. Um, we're not a blog. We're not running opinion pieces. We're not commenting on the issue of the day. We're not really, we're frankly, not good at that. That's what the blogs and Facebook are, you know, do, although not always well, of course. Um, people will write, people, the essay that we'll publish today the author may have initially submitted it six months ago, a year ago. We published a major piece rele relevant to the Chicago crowd on Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz in our most recent issue. It's a 40-page essay. The author worked on it for over three years with multiple rounds of review and multiple rounds of going back to the drawing board and back to the library and back to the Beit Midrash and to, to, to withstand the critique of the, the editors you know, to get it to where it was. But if I expect somebody to, to, to give us their time to read 40 pages about a philosophical debate that, that Eliezer Berkowitz had uh, against, against Heschel, against Avram, uh, uh, Abraham J. Heschel, um, it, it has to be well-written, right? It has to earn the, the eyeballs and time and energy of the, of the reader. So we spend a tremendous amount of time just on a simple editing work, uh, which not every publication does. And, Frankly, not every Jewish publication does, does, does very well. So we're trying to live not in the ivory tower of a little academic discipline, but in the life of a religious community. We're trying to engage our community. You called it modern orthodox. That's good enough for me. Which always kind of flew on its flag, this idea that we are an intellectually awake community, right? Not woke, but awake. 
right? We, we, we are engaged with ideas and part of our religious identity is to be philosophically engaged, thoughtfully engaged, concerned with issues and problems that face the Jewish world, but to try to do it through the prism of, actually this takes us back to my interest in Agdor, to, does through the prism of everything that's been thought and said before we got here by the greater ones than us. And to try to do that walk from the bookshelf to, to the present day and issue. And that's what you just need. It's a, it's, a, it's a tricky job. The tricky job, we sometimes do it better. Sometimes we succeed more. But if, you know, from the fact that people are engaging with the journal, and then on top of that, uh, you know, we publish a, a tremendous amount of digital material directly online two or three times a week, material that we don't have space for in the journal, material that can't suffer uh, the delay uh, for print, uh, featuring things, podcasts, and all that other stuff we're doing on traditiononline.org. Uh, you can go there both to subscribe to the journal and to see what we're doing and, you know, to also to sample the archives going back 65 years, um, uh, you know, things that have been published. Some of Rabbi Soloveitchik's own most important writings in English, including The Lonely Man of Faith, were published first in the pages of, of, of tradition. No, it's it's fascinating from Agnon to Web Yeshiva to tradition, you encompass all of these interesting realms, the literary, the the the, the common chinuch, Jewish education, Jewish learning, and then the scholarship. And that's really what uh, uh, Rabbi Sachs, you bring to the table for all of us, the opportunity yes. to provide for us. The well, our time, our time is actually up. And this has been a, it's been fast. And it's been wonderful to, to talk to you. And I, on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you also for all that you do for Klal Yisrael, because your scholarship is something that is shared and enriches all of us. Thank and you. Fact, I will say that I've been, I've been, you know, it's been extraordinarily unlikely that a young boy from public school in Linden, New Jersey, you know, should now be involved in all of these different endeavors in in the Jewish world of Jewish. Jewish life and Jewish teaching and Jewish literature and Jewish learning uh, is a great is a great uh, well frankly it's 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 just so implausible but it, uh, it it's just I've been so fortunate in the many people who've helped influence my life my teachers my guides and I've been so fortunate that I've been able to combine all of these different interests and activities in my professional life so I feel very blessed in that regard and and I was joking when I said, I blame you. In fact, I really do thank you. <laughs> well, the reality is that implausibility is what makes you so successful at what you do. That, that combination of factors. I look forward to speaking, you in, speaking with you in the future, seeing you in person in the future, please, God. And thank you again, Rabbi Sachs, for your time. Have a wonderful- Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.